Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, a journey through lost Britain with Matthew Green and his new book, Shadowlands. Dr. Matthew Green is a historian, writer and broadcaster with a doctorate from Oxford University. He has appeared in documentaries on the BBC, ITV and Channel 4 and has written historical features for The Guardian and Financial Times. He's the founder of Unreal City Audio, which produces immersive tours of London as live events, podcasts and apps. And he's the author of London, A Travel Guide Through Time and now a new book, Shadowlands, A Journey Through Lost Britain, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Matthew, welcome to Little Atoms. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, tell us first of all, Matthew, where your fascination with disappeared places came from. Uh, Well, it was kind of like an epiphany in that I was summoned as one is to a clifftop in Suffolk, a crumbling clifftop, in whose shadow lay uh, an entire drowned medieval city called Dunwich. And I had read about this place in a book called The Rings of Saturn, but it really fired up my imagination. And I began to wonder whether there might not be a whole shadow map of Britain full of uh, not just cities, but towns and villages as well, which I could sort of weave in to an alternative history. Um, And it felt like it was a timely thing to do. There was a general sense of things melting down and changing form with Brexit and Trump, then the pandemic, and more. And also the whole thing seemed to have quite a chilling climate change subtext as well. So even though I'm writing about the past most of the time, it's got this kind of premonitory perspective upon the future. And I hope it will make people realise that, you know, we can't take our own towns and cities for granted. They may well go the same way as Donich at some point. But it's not, I've just managed to make it sound extremely depressing, but it's, it's also hopefully got lots of energy and life in it because I wanted to resurrect these places that have vanished from the map, you know, in quite colourful detail to make them live again, if only for the amount of time people are reading the book. So tell us then how you settled on the places that you talk about in the chapters, because as you mentioned in the introduction of the book, I mean, Britain is a, a place with an extremely long history. There are, for instance... Roman remains that are, you know, places that no longer exist. So why, why did you settle on these places? 
Yes, good question. And I, I find the fact that it's quite heavily curated and I look at about eight or so places. I, you know, I sometimes discover this to my cost because, you know, I see someone with anger in their eyes at the end of the talk and they're like, how dare you not mention my favourite ghost village at the end of the street? Of course, you can't put everything in. Otherwise, it would become an encyclopedia of thousands and thousands of these spaces. It would be monotonous as hell. So I chose ones which I thought had either not really been written about before or not been written about in the particular way that I wanted to write about them. So the example people quote a lot is Tynum in Dorset, you know, the village that died for England, one of the places that was taken over by the military in the 1940s. And that's kind of been written about a lot. So I found this other sort of shadowy military zone called Stanta in the Norfolk Brecklands that contains all sorts of villages that were zombified by the military and since have um, had these weird alien identities foist upon them. So that was one. There's Winchelsea in Sussex. People, I don't think, realise that used to be a sort of big wine-importing metropolis where ships from all over Europe would dock, and now it's just this sleepy little village. So again, the unexplored. But then some of the places have been written about to death. I mean, St Kilda, which I'm sure many of your listeners would have been to or at least tried to get to. I think it's, I think there've been over a hundred, perhaps even a thousand books on St Kilda. But I wanted to do it through a series of journeys using eyewitness accounts from the 18th century, 19th century, 20th century to see what it is that we see in these vanished places. So it was a mixture of kind of curiosity and, you know, just spotting ones that had never been carried before which amounted to what I rather morbidly call the itinerary of destruction, which took me four years. And I visited every single place or rather non-place. So it was quite an epic odyssey into nothingness. So we're going to talk about probably three or four of the places you talk about in the book. And I want to start with actually where you start, which is Scarabray, which is the hmm. um, Neolithic site in the Orkneys. Tell us, first of all, how it was uncovered. It was uncovered by a tempest in 1850, which, to everybody's surprise, ripped the grassy lid off a sand dune called Scarabray, and concealed within, for over 4,000 years, was this exquisitely preserved Neolithic settlement. And it doesn't seem like anyone really knew that it was down there. So it was a case of the earth suddenly giving up its secrets in quite a violent and dramatic fashion. But it went on to shed such a light on how our ancestors lived at the dawn of civilization. Tell us something about, you paint a, a vivid picture of the Australian archaeologist mm. that was the first person to sort of seriously excavate it. Yes. Tell us something about him. Well, Professor Child was one of these uh, eccentric individuals that seemed to uh, be attracted to lost cities and ghost towns and abandoned places. So you know, there, there, are, there are real characters in the book. And he's a man who seems to have had a mind the size of Mars. Uh, he could speak goodness knows how many languages. He could do long division in Latin, which is useful. He would address the audience in all sorts of obscure languages that couldn't even be spoken anymore. And he became obsessed with this village in the sands. And it actually informs his whole theories about why civilization itself was able to take hold. It, you know, with the invention of agriculture, Scarabray was actually older than the pyramids, older than Stonehenge. It was built in this kind of threshold between mankind being hunter-gatherers and putting down roots. 
And although he was an abrasive man himself, he, he was rather unpleasant to look at, according to all the sources. And he had this enormous moustache that sort of looked like it was going to envelop you when he was talking. He was a socialist as well. And he was very intrigued by what he found in the sand because all the houses were identical. It was more like a commune bored into the earth and they were all connected by these slithering passageways. It didn't seem like, you know, some people were rich and they were lording it over the, the poor who were living in sort of squalid dwellings. And they all seemed to live quite a nice standard of life with many of the things that your listeners will be looking at now, you know, like tables and chairs and beds and fireplaces and even fridges. So he wrote about this in a book and his main thesis about how civilization took hold is, is still has sovereignty. And to some extent, it's all because of this storm that uncovered what would have been lost if it hadn't been built of Orcadian stone and if it hadn't been buried in that antithesis of form, sand. The site is, it's obviously been, it was buried by the sand and, and continued to be so over the centuries. But when it's been excavated, it looks like like it looks like one of these places like you see in Star Wars or something, like almost like an underground village. Mm. But this is because of something that grew up, which goes by the rather romantic sounding name of the Midden, which is actually nothing yeah. of the sort. Mm. So tell us what this was, because this is this is astonishing the way that this grew up around the houses. Yeah, so you're totally right. It wasn't subterranean to begin with, and when it was built around 3200 BC, which is actually an incredibly radical thing to do, by the way, because at, at the time, most built structures were to house not the living, but the dead, whereas this would house entire generations of the families and, and their descendants. You're actually looking at four different villages that became submerged because they wrapped their colony in this kind of protective mulch of organic waste. And slowly but surely, it kind of, almost like a kind of organic life force, it kind of consumed the buildings and the huts and the streets until the whole thing took on this underground alien appearance. I think, you know, you're referring to that when you mentioned Star Wars. Like, I thought it looked like a, some kind of psychedelic crazy golf course when I approached it on that sort of freezing cold day on Orkney. So utterly bizarre. But it made sense. You know, it was a good way to insulate themselves against those glacial winds, to keep warm, to offer protection. And for historians and archaeologists, it's an amazing repository of lifestyle because, you know, we can find what they ate, the bones of birds that have been discarded into it. Also, these very enigmatic, spiky bulls, which could have been some kind of spiritual offering or votive offerings or just like playing pieces like dice we just don't know so it, the whole place is actually like trying to respond to a piece of abstract art because there are no written sources it's unlikely we're ever going to have definitive answers but you know the joy is almost in the not knowing yeah i mean we can only really speculate on what the purpose of the place was and how people lived there and why they lived there yeah but... I mean, people have come up with wild theory. people have said it you know it was a colony of magician priests and it was to do with these vast monuments and henges and chambered burial sites in the middle of the island. And other people have come up with kind of completely different theories. And that it must have been the resort of the elites or rather than this socialist utopia that Professor Child would have us believe. So I don't think we will ever know for sure. At least I'd be very surprised. One of the things we haven't really mentioned yet is how old it is, because it is very, very, very old. Yeah, older than the pyramids. This was put up as I said, a time when humanity had only really just started 
relatively speaking, husbanding animals. And instead of forever marauding over territory, actually deciding to put down roots and till the land and make it work for them. And the whole book is one about lost causes and false starts and dead ends. And with the uptake of agriculture, that may very well have seemed like some kind of crazy idea that would never actually take hold to the extent that it eventually did, because it allows for the formation of political structures and culture and um, so on and so forth. And it may yet be a false start, you know, because agriculture, civilized, it leads to industrialization, which, and we're currently suffering from the ravages of that. So who knows, perhaps we will regress to a, a sort of Scarabray-like place in the wake of environmental or nuclear or some kind of pandemical apocalypse. And again, it can only ever be speculation, but what are some of the what are some of the theories about its downfall, about why it was abandoned? Well, Professor Childs, uh, he was a good writer. He had an eye for drama and he found uh, some beads from a woman's necklace just splattered over the floor as though her necklace had got caught in the jamb or the hinge of the door. So from that, he extrapolated this rather sort of Hollywood-friendly image of an enormous sandstorm and everyone fleeing for their lives before they got buried in sand. And, you know, maybe that happened. They also discarded these delicious midnight snacks of calves' heads and whatnot. Um, so that seemed to add weight to this theory. But I, I don't really buy it because sandstorms were not that infrequent. And why wouldn't they have just gone back and dug out the sands and reoccupied it? Unless they thought the site was cursed for some reason. I reckon other factors were more likely to be at play, such as the increasing barrenness of the surrounding fields as more and more sea spray fell upon it as the sea encroached in. Or perhaps, as we see again and again in the history of lost places, that the young, the youth, bled away in search of better opportunities and essentially making the community unsustainable, kind of like what happened in St Kilda on the other side of the Scottish Ocean. There could have been some pandemic. They lived in very close proximity to animals. And as we know, to our own cost, pathogens can leap across. So those are the theories. And we just have absolutely no idea which one of them, if any, is true. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Matthew Green, and we're talking about his new book, Shadowlands, A Journey Through Lost Britain. And Matthew, you've mentioned a couple of the significant-sized places that you talk mm. about in the book. Dunwich, somewhere, which I'm, I'm also very familiar with, having been up to that coast many times. And actually, I'm going to skip over Winchelsea as well, because coincidentally, we talked about it on the show only a, a couple of weeks ago with Alex Preston about his oh, yeah. fantastic novel that. about the... Uh, yeah. about the place. So I want to talk about a place that I'd never heard of before picking up your book, even though apparently it's been all over the media and Twitter for the past few right. years, which yeah. is a place called Trellick on, yes. on the sort of Welsh-English borders, yeah. which is, well, it may be a lost city, it may not, but tell us something about what that place is. Well, Trellick, located in the Welsh marches, is a very curious specimen because If you go there today, it's like the sleepiest of sleepy villages. It's almost comatose, you know, on a plateau beyond the Forest of Dean. Very peaceful. Got a sort of mystical tranquility about it uh, with Bronze Age stones and wishing wells and wicked wells and the rest of it. But according to tax records from the 13th century, this was perhaps the biggest city in the whole of Wales. It was something that was much vaster and more monumental than what is left today. And no one has really been able to sort of locate it. It's a big mystery as to what happens, or not so much what happened, but where it ended up. Until at the beginning of the 21st century, a farmer noticed that moles had been digging up little shards of pottery and pots herds from one of his fields. And this sort of led him to believe that there was something significant down there. This reached the ears of another kind of professor childlike character, Stuart Wilson, who was an archaeology graduate. And on a whim, on a hunch, he was like, well, this must be where the core of the lost, buried medieval city is. So he used, as any reasonable person would do, he used his entire life savings to buy up the field, started digging to the chagrin and callous amusement, I think it's fair to say, of uh, many of the professional archaeologists who lived nearby and had been looking for it for some time with limited success. They'd found iron workshops, but they hadn't really found urban, dense, grid street layout that they would have been expecting. So to their horror, or surprise at the very least, he did begin to find all sorts of artefacts, such as a big manor house. Um, He found a jewel-encrusted pilgrim's flask, a roof filial to scare off witches, and um, he initiated a, a huge dig, which still continues to this day, and people travel from all over the world to dig down and try to find Trelec. Now, it's, it's still a mystery because how could this... We do know that it was just a village at the beginning of the 13th century. So how could you possibly go from somewhere that was just one outpost of the sort of Norman dominion of Wales to this giant sprawling metropolis in such a short space of time, as testified by those tax records? 
And I think the key is these iron workshops, which um, the earlier academics had found, because it would seem to be a place where the local sort of warlords, the de Clare family, were smelting and forging iron weapons like swords and spears and shields and all sorts of hideous weapons, which were going to help them to crush the native Welsh because the de Clares were in league with Edward I. This seemed to have been a giant munitions factory, a boom town, if you like. And as we know from the example of California, those old kind of gold mining towns, often a boom town can very easily become a sort of foredoomed town. And it becomes a ghost town that sort of litters the landscape as sort of monuments to capitalist endeavour and extractive production. And it seems that's what happened. Uh, the de Clare family were wiped out in the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314. Uh, there was no longer a need for them because they were dead. And also the town then became hideously vulnerable to being attacked by the native Welsh. And it seems to have slowly but surely sunk and decayed, fallen beneath the earth. It's described as a village in 18th century newspapers. And then it embraced its oblivion until the moles dug it up in 2002. So it's a wonderful example of nature, a second reclamation by nature in the form of these moles. Digging blind into the earth seemed to have found what other people had, you know, had been looking for, but hadn't quite managed to find. This whole chapter reads, this whole period reads like a, an episode of Game of Thrones or something. It seems like Good, I hope so. an incredibly yeah. deadly and, and violent oh. time. Mm. Just take us back again to the, the Welsh marshes at this time and tell yes. us what was going on. So like, what was the, what was the sort of political situation? Why were the, the Clare family Well, it, it was the um, first chapter, really, in, in the sort of history of England's colonisation of other lands and territories. So following the Norman conquest, the new dynasty wanted to subjugate uh, what the Anglo-Saxons had never really managed to do. And that was uh, you know, Wales, this land of rival kingdoms to the west of Offa's dyke. And in so doing, the kings, the Norman kings and the Plantagenets, carved out these fiefdoms um, along the border called the Welsh marches. And they were given over to the nobility, who in return were expected to support um, the English kings. And they soon became these sort of martial zones. They've been described as the Wild West of Britain, stamped with fortresses and castles, you know, lands of raids and counter-raids and torches and death squads in the woods and wolves slinking past the trees and entire families summoned to rival mansion houses and they're slaughtered, all of which is beautifully and rather um, morbidly captured, I think it's fair to say, in Gerald of Wales's Journey Through Wales. And this very much set the tone for what was going on. That's why they needed all these weapons, because they were constantly fighting the rival Welsh kingdoms. Wales had never quite managed to coalesce into some sort of you know, unitary political kingdom like England had done. You know, that's a bit of an exaggeration. But, and Edward I and his allies were sort of exploiting this and forever fighting their campaigns. So he's known as the hammer of the Scots, but he was also the hammer of the Welsh as well. And that still informs the landscape today. You know, if you go to Gwynedd, the northwestern part of Wales is surrounded by a ring of these huge sort of concentric castles and munitions. And Trelec was very much a part of that. It was very near the eastern border. And it was 
not really suited for trade because there's no river and it's very high up. And as I found out to my great exhaustion, you have to go through this enormous forest, which I rather ambitiously tried to cycle through in one morning, but it virtually took all day. So when its very specialist economic function to make these weapons was exhausted, it you know, lay moribund and couldn't be expected to survive. But it's very much a token of these early wars, these endless wars that did so much to shape the Britain that we still have today. And then the last place I want to look at, you've also already mentioned, which is uh, the Stanta villages yeah. in Norfolk and your visit to these places. So tell us, first of all, what happened to them, what the purpose was, and then we can talk about what they were like to visit now. So you know, I wrote about mediums of oblivion in the book, those things that can lay communities low, whether it be climate change, um, economic shifts. Sometimes it's war. And we normally think of that in terms of aerial bombardment and entire cities being obliterated. But actually, to wage war abroad, you need training grounds, particularly when you're trying to train troops for unfamiliar terrain. So in the 1940s, entire zones were identified by the military as places that would make really good training grounds to train troops for the kind of close quarters urban combat they were going to face following the D-Day landings. And it's an astonishing statistic, but 20% of the entire landmass of the UK was uh, carved up in this way. And most of those places were relatively sparsely occupied, but some of them, like Stanta, the Stanford training area, had uh, entire clusters of villages in them and they were informed. They had to get out, they would be rehoused, but they had to leave these communities you know, where all their ancestors were buried, where they had grown up to which they had an emotional attachment for the greater national good. And most people left without too much of a fuss because it, it seemed like a reasonable quid pro quo. And they were told they were, would be allowed back after the war effort was over. So they were banished. And these cluster of six or seven villages within Stanta became adapted to sort of mimic the sort of villages they would encounter in northern France. Nazi villages they've been described as, although that's a bit histrionic. And the thing was, basically, the land was never given back after the war. The military decided it would be a good idea to retain it. And as such, the identities of these villages within shifted in a very eerie and unsettling way, depending on who Britain was at war with beyond its shores. So there appeared, within Stanza, a Soviet-style village during the Cold War. Um, there appeared a Bosnian village and an Iraqi village, and most spectacularly, eventually, at Eastmere Bridge Car, which is a place within the zone to the west of it, um, they built a vivid simulacrum of an Afghan village where they recreated conditions right down to the synthetic odours being pumped out, right down to the amputee actors playing the victims of suicide bombers, right down to the mock wells and the mock mosques and, and the mock everything else. So it was this weird sort of nightmare theatre of war, quite literally. And um, of course, now there's been a seamless transition of power back to the Taliban. It lies empty. So it's achieved a sort of a quality of oblivion that matches the other place that have been looked at in the book. It's an eerie place to visit because it makes you wonder like, what's going to sprout there next. And it's a sad tale. I mentioned most people went quietly into the night, but some people didn't. Some people were so attached to the land they wouldn't give up. There was one lady called Lucilla Reeve, who, who was, was a, rather a transgressive figure. 
a, a Nazi lesbian, she's been described, which, you know, at the time was highly radical. And um, she decided she wasn't going to give up. So she actually stayed there, tried to farm the land, moved into a succession of disastrous properties with tanks churning up and, and troop games happening on her very doorstep until she realised you know, the game was lost, the military was never giving her beloved land back. She ended up living in a chicken plucking sheds where, you know, in, in, in a forlorn circle of trees in the woods where she eventually hanged herself and her grave can still be seen in the graveyard today. The whole landscape is littered with ghost churches wreathed in barbed wire, one of the most haunting aspects of the landscape. And the former residents and their descendants are allowed back once a year for a special carol service in one of the ghost churches where the whole sort of landscape is redeemed through the power of sorrow. So I would say to your listeners, go and have a visit, but it's extremely hard to get in. You, you can't just rock up. Um, I wouldn't recommend trying to climb over the perimeter fence and you might come to a sticky end. Um, you, you, I, I mean, I, it took me about a year to persuade the military to let me in. And then I was given this wonderful tour by a um, retired commander who was absolutely passionate about the landscape. But it, if you do manage to make it in, it does look a bit familiar because it's where Dad's army was filmed. So yeah, probably one of the most haunting places I visited, but it really sort of has ominous parallels with the present day. And to finish it off then, Matthew, what... Well, I was going to say what lessons, but that's probably not the right word. What sort of premonitions can mm. we see in these empty places for our future? Yeah, well, that's the, the dark side of all of this. It's by looking at these places that were once so brimming with life and energy and bells and dreams and more, they're now just spectral echoes rotted into the ground. In some cases, like Donich, there's absolutely nothing there to see at all. It's sort of you know, it's sad, it's like an elegiac resurrection of the past, but it also brings into focus the fragility of the present, you know, staring at the windswept priory just on the cliff of Suffolk, which will itself soon go under, quite literally. It makes you think about, you know, how transient the present is. But, you know, like when you stare at any ruin, it also seems to foretell our future decline. You know, that works in a metaphorical sense, it's emblems of mortality, you know, it has quite an effect on you meditating all these ruins, but also in a societal sense as well. It seems to predict how many of our own communities, many of our own towns and cities might end up, and particularly with the effects of the climate crisis and, and you know, this connection with the pandemic. You know, the, the worse global warming is, the more likely there is to be another more deadly pandemic. And just as it said, if you stand on the cliffs and stare out at Donich, you're meant to be able to hear the sound of all the bells of the drowned churches underneath. You know, studies have shown that by the end of the century, if not before, much of London itself will be underwater. So who knows, perhaps one day we'll, um, the, these sort of windswept flaneurs that were attracted to these places will be standing atop Hampstead Heath, staring at the watery wasteland below and trying to hear the sounds of Christopher Wren's submerged churches, which is not a cheery thought. So I've been talking to Matthew Green. We've been talking about his book, Shadowlands. A Journey Through Lost Britain, which is out in the UK from Faber. Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you very much. It was a delight. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.